Hey girl, how are you? We're like ships passing in the night. We are. Hello. Yeah. Hi. I'm wonderful. How are you, gorgeous? Clearly you're fucking wonderful. <laughs> I'm slightly, I'm going to say sun-kissed because that's more flattering, but I'm like, I'm a little red. I'm in Florida right now. So of course it's coming to bite me in the ass already. You know, it's just SPF, baby. For all. So the first thing we did upon landing was immediately go to the beach. Fuck yeah. Yes. And Johnny's mom came to pick us up from the airport. She drove us to the beach. And literally as we're walking up to the beach, she goes, okay, we're not going to stay here for very long because the one thing I forgot to bring was sunscreen and you're very pale. And I was like, thank you so much. Yes, that is the correct the correct thing to say because I am very pale. But how many hours did you stay at the beach? We stayed there for a while. I did not. I was actually the only one who really didn't get burnt because when Johnny went to get his pina coladas, he also bought sunscreen. It was only SPF 15, which you know, I am definitely an SPF 50 girl, but I just literally like doused myself in it till I was dripping. And then I covered myself in a towel and like hid and I managed to stay relatively safe. Fuck yeah, you did it right. You know, even you, you made it work. I did. I had to. Otherwise, I would literally look like a lobster right now. <laughs> At the beach, though, I went in the ocean, which, you know, I'm not really crazy about. It was super nice and warm, though. And we got to snorkel. <sighs> and I saw a jellyfish and a barracuda and like a bunch of cool fucking fish. It was awesome. Fuck yeah. I love all of that. Yeah. So actually, Florida has been pretty great. It's still awful and muggy and there are a million mosquitoes at night. But I mean, it's still Florida. Yes. But that was fun. I had a great time. That's fantastic. I love hearing that. Yeah. We came down because, oh, big news. I'm forgetting to say this. It's Johnny B. Good's motherfucking birthday today. So happy birthday, babe. Bow, bow, bow. Bow, bow, bow. Happy birthday to your fiance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also, I believe it was yesterday was our girl Haley's birthday. Oh, shit. Happy birthday, Haley. All the cool people are having fucking birthdays. Happy birthday, girl. We're obsessed with you. Fuck yeah. Virgos. Get it. <laughs> I love it. No, I love it. I'm surrounded. Yeah, I'm surrounded by Virgos. I was like, our good friend Nico is also. Yeah. He was like a few days before. Yeah. You know, recently I've been surrounded by Virgos in the bar. <laughs> There's just a gang of them. They're like the Virgo gang. I mean, I dated one. It was suboptimal. Oh, okay. Yeah. As you know. Yes, you're very well aware. They're not for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> not because my Virgo is suboptimal. That is not what she's implying. No, no, no. I just know the story of her Virgo. That's what, <laughs> just want that to be perfectly clear. This one, my Virgo was very suboptimal. Yes. <laughs> Johnny's lovely. Yes. I was like, I'm a cancer. So it's very, yeah, it's very different. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. How have you been, lady? What have you been up to? I was in Nashville, girl. Fuck yeah. Yeah. I went to Nashville to see Pearl Jam, as I think I mentioned last week. (gasps) How the fuck was Pearl Jam? They were fucking great. They're always great. Yes. You know. They played played all the songs you wanted to hear? I mean, I waited three years for the concert. (laughs) I mean, yeah, it better be great because otherwise you feel like, it's disappointing. Yeah. Yeah. They played the, you know, the greats like Better Man and, and Black, which are great ones. Even Flow? Of course. Got to. Okay. That's my favorite. I'm a, a hopeful romantic and a chronic optimist and 
<laughs> and a sap. So my favorite Pearl Jam songs are very sappy. Oh, I like that. It's uh, Sirens. Yeah, Sirens and Come Back are my favorite songs. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's, there's nothing wrong with that. It's classics. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but they're not going to play that like, you know, ever. <laughs> so, Probably not. Not live. But I, I enjoyed it. They, they were great. Uh, I got to stay with my friend. We had a great time. Did I sign up for a ghost tour in Nashville? Yes. Fuck yes, you did. Did I sleep through it? Yes. Because <sighs> Mercury is in fucking retrograde and the alarms were like just not a thing that were working like at all. What? Like my alarms just like didn't work. Yeah. I barely made my flight. Oh no. Because the exact same thing happened. We took a nap and then... My friend woke me up being like, hey, weren't you supposed to like wake up like an hour ago? And I was like, fuck. Like it was, it was a whole thing. I made the flight, but by the grace of God. Oh no. I'm glad that you made the flight. I'm also glad to hear that Mercury's in retrograde because I almost texted you earlier this week because I had so many technological issues with like my internet, my entire PC, just like I restarted it and then just decided it would never start up ever again. And it's in like a constant loop of like troubleshoot. Like my whole team's crashed. It was insane to the point that I almost just out of the blue was like, is Mercury retrograde? Like what the fuck is actually happening right now? So. Well, I think technically we have a couple more days, but then it's like the shadow period before. It's like Mercury's always in retrograde. It's always fucking us. (laughs) Something's going on. Just accept that this is your life now. Yes. However, I found out something yesterday that was wildly exciting. (gasps) Tell me, tell me. The cinematic 90s classic don't tell mom the babysitter's dead is on Hulu. Right. Meow bitches. Ah, okay. Did I watch it at like one in the morning, even though I had to be up at like five? Yes. I've never seen this movie. Monique is horrified. Amy. She's frozen. Yes. I feel very bad admitting this now to the point that I almost just lied to you and told you I had seen it because I was like, Monique is going to be so disappointed in me. If I tell her I haven't seen this movie, (sighs) I've never seen it. Okay. I'll watch that then. You said cinematic classic. So I feel this needs to be done. Christina Applegate. Oh, love her. Icon. Yes. Incredible. You're also like, how old are you again? 33. Yeah. So you're younger than my younger brother and you didn't have an older sibling to be like, hey, watch this shit. So it's totally fine. It's acceptable. Okay. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how I missed out on that, but that was not part of my, my cinematic watching as a child. I feel like I've heard great things about it and about her in it, especially. It is so good. It's great. It's fantastic. It's like 90 minutes. It's iconic. You know, if you've ever heard anyone say, I'm right on top of that rose, it's a a thing from Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so it's the first time I've rewatched like 20 plus years that I watched this movie. One, there is a character who, when I watched it as a kid, was so disgusting. He's like very smarmy and like gross. And even though I didn't understand things like postcoital bliss when I was like seven or whatever the fuck, yep. I knew that it was like, this is a gross thing that's happening, that he's like propositioning her in a very gross way. And now as a grown up and watching it, I'm like, you are so fucking disgusting. Like, ew, like get Gloria Steinem on the fucking horn, shut this motherfucker down, <laughs> fuck you. And he's like two-timing Rose spoiler, who's a fucking babe and way hot and cool and supportive and like doesn't deserve her. There's a throwaway line that that 
Rose says to Sue Ellen, who's Christina Applegate, if like she's ever had a 48 hour orgasm because of like the weekend she had with this fucking disgusting dude. I was like, look, time the fuck out of all of the like wildly unrealistic things that have been propositioned in this movie that I totally am here for and I will totally fucking buy. I do not buy the Gus knows how to please a woman, gives a fuck about pleasing a woman, and can give her a 48-hour orgasm. That is the most outlandish thing of all of the things that have been propositioned in this film. You're like, that's the part I don't believe. And Amy, please watch it. And then you fucking, that's the shit I don't believe. I, I will buy every other fucking insane thing and I will be here for it. But that is the thing that now as an adult, when I heard that, I was like, excuse me, no. Like, absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely the fuck not. That is a bridge too far. No. <laughs> All right, fuck. I gotta watch this and I gotta text you as soon as this happens because I'm sure I'm gonna feel the exact same way about it. Of course you are because we're psychic sisters and like you could legit watch it twice on the plane. Oh, perfect. It's the correct movie amount. <laughs> You're like, it's worth the rewatch immediately after. You won't be disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like all movies should be like 90 to 100 minutes. Sorry, James Cameron. Sorry, everything else. Like 90 to 100 minutes. Let's go. I kind of agree. Like, I just, my attention span's not that great. I'll fall asleep. I'll fall asleep in a 90 minute movie. So like the three hour movie for sure, I'm fucking falling asleep. Not even that. I need a fucking pee, girl. Oh yeah, that too. Yeah. Alfred Hitchcock used to say that the, the length of a movie should be directly correlated to like the average like human bladder size and what it could withstand. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Hitchcock. Yes. But yes, Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead is on Hulu. For those of you who don't know, you're welcome. Lives are changed. Thank you, Monique. I didn't know. And I think it has been changed. So TBD. It's so good. I'm excited. Good. It's so good. Ah, it's so good. It's, uh, I can't, I'm like so excited for you. That's amazing. Yay. Fuck yeah. All right. And then you have like Josh Charles and Christian Applegate and David Duchovny also looking fucking disgusting and being disgusting. Oh, wait, is he? I usually like him. Damn it. No, no, no. But in the movie, he's disgusting. He's gross. Okay. That's fine. I can accept that. Like I posted a thing on Facebook about this being like all caps, bold italics underline. Don't tell mom the babysitter's dad is on Hulu. You're welcome. And then someone commented about whatever they felt about the movie. And it was like, what is going on with David Duchovny's hair? Like, it's like, what the fuck is up with David Duchovny's hair? And I was like, what the fuck is up with David Duchovny's everything in this fucking movie? Like, all of it top to bottom. It's like, what is happening? Just <laughs> period. Hashtag not here for it. Also understand it's a, a character, so it's fine. But, ugh, it's so good. Fuck. Okay. I clearly am missing out. So I'm. it's on my to-do list. I will make sure that I watch this. I say that all the time, but this time I really mean it. Maybe. Yeah, girl. <laughs> So is that it? Is that all the excitement for the week? I think so. On my end, for sure. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Cool. So we're going to get the spooky, weird shit on the fucking road, baby? Yeah. Let's get a little little spooky. Now, I feel like you're like, it's been a while. Amy's going to do an alien story. But... Oh, shit. Okay. I thought about it. Fake out. Fake out. The thing is, I loved the Patty Stangler... Lizzie story so much that like I can't no other story has called to me (laughs) so I tried I was like oh I'll do another famously afraid alien story then like totally fine and then I watched Geraldo Rivera's and I was like this was so boring and not anything to write home about like he just saw something in the sky that no one else saw yeah great 
Cool. So anyway, that's not where we're going with this. Instead, I watched some Paranormal Witness. (gasps) So I have a Paranormal Witness story for you this week. Fuck yes. Girl. So this one comes from season three, episode 17, titled The Visitors. Bill Vale was the kind of person who was always curious about things, what they're made of, and how they work. So it makes sense that he ended up pursuing science as a career. Although he had had a variety of jobs over the years, they were all technical jobs. He worked as an engineer on a nuclear submarine, as a pilot for our aerospace program, aka NASA bitches, and even worked as a robotics engineer. Although I did mention that I know someone who works at NASA. Do you? Mm-hmm. That's so badass. I love that. No, they're badass. I'm not. I just know them very casually when we went to college together a thousand years ago. That definitely adds to your badass cred that you know somebody who works at NASA. Like, I'll (laughs) I'll say that. I'll give you that at least. Thank you. But yes, that is super badass. Everyone described Bill as a rational straight shooter. But in 2002, Bill was going through a divorce. And after it was finalized, he decided it was time for a change. So he moved back to Texas. Although he had grown up in Joplin, Missouri, he had family in Texas now, including his younger brother, Bob, and thought it would be a good place to settle down. Bob helped Bill with his move, and both of them ended up working in the same water treatment plant in their town. Bill had been on the job for a couple of months when he got an appointment one Saturday afternoon. The woman was supposedly a real stickler about tardiness and requested he show up on time. Bill did show up on time, though he heard someone screaming when he got to the door. It kept getting louder and louder, but he was there to do a job. So he just went ahead and knocked on the door. We're not the same person, Bill. No, we're not. I would be like, I'm calling 911, either a domestic <laughs> exactly. like disturbance is happening or some shit's going down. I'm not going to be like, hi, is, are you screaming? What's happening? No, Mm-mm. that's not part of my job description. Mm-mm. I don't think I'm qualified for this. No, I'm not. No. Mm-mm. So from the reenactments, it doesn't seem like anyone answered the door and that Maybe it was just unlocked. And because he could hear that people were inside, he decided to open the door and walk in. Regardless, he goes inside the house. And when he gets inside, he sees this woman walking around a room with a bunch of other people in it. And it's clear she's performing some kind of ritual. Hmm. But Bill had no idea what was going on. He said she was waving her hand over them and screaming these words. And I don't know if that means she was speaking in tongues or just a different language and he didn't understand what she was saying, what's really going on. He didn't specify exactly what she said. But regardless, she's screaming over these people and it's freaking him the fuck out. Then Bill said the woman gave him this look. And after that, he decided that the weird factor had just gotten too high and he decided to leave. Bill called the company he worked for and told them he didn't know what was going on, but that that woman was crazy and not to reschedule him to come back to this house. He was like, I'm done. You can send another tech. Thanks. Later that night, he's relaxing at home, eating dinner, watching some TV. When out of the corner of his eye, he sees something dart or fly by him. In his place? Yes, in his house. He's back in his house. So sitting, eating dinner, something goes rushing by him. but. Bill is a man of science. He's a rational man. So he assumes something just got in the house. Maybe a bird. He works for NASA for fuck's sake. Yes, seriously. Like, I've been on a nuclear submarine. (laughs) I'm not going to just assume this is a fucking spirit or a ghost, all right? Thank you. Mm -hmm. So he just thinks that maybe a bird or a bat or something like flew in the chimney. 
So he gets up, he looks all over the house for whatever he had seen, but he couldn't find anything. But he also couldn't get it out of his head that he had seen something and he was sure that he had seen something. But he just kind of brushes it off and it's like, whatever, I can't find anything, must have escaped. Later, after he went to bed, Bill was laying there trying to fall asleep when suddenly he felt something run across the foot of his bed, which no. What the fuck? No, no, no. Not on my little feeties, not on my little toesies. One best case scenario, rat mouse situation, which I'm moving out of the fucking house. Like that, I don't, it's, it's already terrifying and it's not even paranormal, maybe yet. Correct. When rat is your best case scenario, no, I want no scenarios ever. Thank you. Hard pass. When he turned the light on, nothing was there. But he just figured that whatever it was had jumped off the end of the bed. But he's now convinced that there's definitely some sort of animal in his house. And since his bedroom door was closed, he's like, great, it's locked in this room. I'm going to be able to find it. He looks everywhere in his room, high and low. There's absolutely nothing. And there's no like holes or anything where it seems like anything can get in. I'm moving out of the house. Like I'm not going to sleep in that room. I'm moving out of the house. Girl, you and me both. Like it touched my (laughs) fucking feet. It touched my feet. Goodbye. Like, I'm done. At the very least, I'm 100% sleeping with shoes on. Like, I don't care how fucking crazy that makes me look. No, absolutely not. No, but what if it, like, runs on your face? Girl, I can't. Oh, yes. This always makes me think of, you. I don't think you ever probably watched Raising Hope, but there's a character in that, Sabrina, who is terrified. I saw a couple episodes. It was very charming. It's very charming. I actually really liked it. And there's a character on there who is terrified. I love Martha Plimpton. <gasps> I know. She's fantastic. Oh, I love her. There's a character on there, Sabrina, who is terrified that a spider will crawl in her mouth while she's sleeping. So she sleeps with pantyhose over her head oh and everyone makes fun of her like she's a psycho. And when I'm watching that show, I'm like, that is so like real and relatable to me that like if I didn't think everyone would make fun of me, I could be that level of crazy probably. <laughs> I'm obsessed with you. I'm admitting that freely right now. I love you. Like, I get where she's coming from. I'm not at that level yet, but we're not far. I could throw a rock over there, probably. (laughs) I agree. I agree. I'm not at that level, but I, you know, I see it on the horizon. Yes. If I had had an incident, oh, surely. Like, if I ever had to sleep again, I'm not, I would never take the chance. I would 100% do that shit. You know, it's a neighboring house. (laughs) I can see it over there. It's like Gatsby with a green light. I see you right over there, girl. I fucking see you. Pop bar. I could take a boat <laughs> to that bitch. Yeah. <laughs> so he's freaked out. We were obviously not the same person. And this is the second weird thing that's happened to him after today. Like after the, not even counting the seeing the weird ritual at the appointment, like he saw something fly by him and now something ran across his bed. So he's freaked the fuck out. And he starts to wonder what's really going on. Later, as he's drifting to sleep, his bed starts shaking and like really shaking, like a lot from side to side to the point that he's literally like rolling from one side of the bed to the other is how violently this bed is shaking. What the fuck? Right? Then as soon as it starts, it stops. Dead silence, nothing. So again, this is a very rational man. He's like, okay, maybe an earthquake happened or something. I don't really know. He gets up. He decides he's going to try to shake the bed to see how physically easy it is to move. 
Like, this is a really heavy bed. So even if it was an earthquake, the odds of it like rocking the bed back and forth are highly unlikely. But he decides he's going to start looking into what might have caused this bed to move. So he gets online. He looks it up. There's no reported earthquakes in the vicinity. But he realizes that there is a military base nearby. So he's like, maybe the sonic boom from the planes had some effect. It's far-fetched. But what other explanation does he have? He also looks up and realizes they drill for oil nearby. So he thinks, okay, maybe it was the oil drilling, causing vibrations in the ground, et cetera, et cetera. He's trying to come up with any logical explanation for how this bed could have moved because he's a pretty big dude and he couldn't physically move this bed back and forth. So he's just trying to find some explanation for what is going on. But while he's online researching it, his internet suddenly just goes out. And, you know, it's happened to all of us. You're like, oh, fuck. Okay, Mercury's in retrograde. He was like, God damn it, Mercury, you son of a bitch. He's a little annoyed, obviously. We've all been there. But he starts trying to troubleshoot the issue and see if he can fix it himself. But no matter what he does, nothing fixes the internet and he can't get it to come back on. Which again, this man worked for NASA. He's an engineer. I'm, I, I don't think this is somebody who like, he's like, I don't know how to restart my computer. I'm pretty sure like if anyone knows the proper steps to take, it's probably this guy. Probably not his first rodeo. So he can't get it to work and he decides he's going to call the provider to report the outage and see if they can help him fix it. While he's on the phone with the customer service rep, he starts hearing this voice coming from the line, quote, deep, raspy, breathy, end quote. He couldn't tell what it was saying, but he said it sounded threatening. Disturbed by the strange, threatening voice, he just hung up the phone. He was like, fuck this. A minute later, the phone rang and Bill answered. What the fuck? Girl. The same customer service rep had called him back because they got disconnected. And Bill immediately asked the man if he had heard the same voice that he did. And the man said yes. <gasps> Girl. Chills. Right? So Bill immediately is like, okay, well, have you ever heard anything like that before? And the guy was like, absolutely not. That's a no for me, dog. For real, right? Burn it down. Burn it down. <laughs> Then he goes on to tell Bill that the phone lines are either connected or they're not. So if they could hear the same thing, then their line is connected and they should have been able to hear each other. But while the voice was happening, whatever the fuck it was, they couldn't hear one another at all. Even though supposedly both of them were still like talking and saying like, are you there? Can you hear me? Shit like that. So the guy hears the same thing. He's like, there's no way this could happen. And they just really had no explanation for it. But whatever. After that happened. He decided to just call it a night and he crawled into bed. But Bill said he literally couldn't sleep because of all this weird shit that had just happened to him back to back. Like this is the fucking like fourth thing that's happened. He was officially freaked the fuck out. As he was laying there, he heard a noise coming from under the bed, which I feel like is just like too much of a childhood terror that that is like I literally was just going to say every childhood nightmare. Yes. So I feel like that really is like extra terrifying because it's a thing you're scared of when you're a kid. So you're just like, as an adult, you're like, there's something under the bed, like it's fine. And then when that doesn't seem to be the case and something really might be under your bed, like the fear of that, oh, no. Uh-uh. So he's lying there hearing this noise. Then what felt like a hand reached up and grabbed his ankle. No, thank you. No, 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 uh-uh, no, no. Girl. No, burn it down. Move out. 
No. Burn it down. Thank you. Yes, Monique. No. Yes. No. And Bill wasn't dreaming. He said for a fact he was awake and said this was, quote, actually happening to me, end quote. Girl. Mm -mm. So despite all this, Bill, I guess, just keeps brushing this off. Like, he's a stronger man than me because I would have fucking gotten out of this house immediately or burned it down either way. But he just continues living and sleeping in this fucking shaking bed, apparently. Some time passes. Then on another night, Bill was getting ready to eat dinner in his chair in front of the TV. And he poured himself a cup of water from a glass bottle he had sitting across the room. And then he sat down to eat. As soon as he did, though, the glass bottle flew across the room and smashed on the wall next to where he was sitting. Bill said it was, quote, like somebody had thrown it at me full force, end quote. Then all the lights in the house went out. Dude, what the? F- OK, no, 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 no. Like, no, 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 no. What are you still doing in the house? Right. A bottle smashes next to your head and all the lights go out and you're going to like investigate what's going on, sir. This is literally those horror movies where... I stop feeling sympathy for you because you're staying in the house. <laughs> this is on you now. Like there's not enough motive for you to keep staying in the house. You should have left. Yes. But no, Bill's a big, strong man and he's very pragmatic. And he's like, I'm just going to go get a flashlight. Like the lights are out. Fuck. I mean, but here's the thing that, because I, th- I think, yes, I'm very woo woo, but I'm also very pragmatic as well. And I don't jump to the like, hmm, I, I do the, the, I like investigate the thing, be like, what could this be like in the natural world? Yeah. That caused this thing. There's too many things happening in a row. But when it's like the 18th thing. Yeah. Then you're like, no, like burn it down, leave the fucking house. Goodbye. Yes. Yes. Correct, Monique. But no, he's like, I'm just going to get a flashlight. It'll be fine. NBD. So he gets up and he goes to the closet where the flashlights are. But when he reaches inside, he hears a bang inside the closet as though someone had picked up one of the heavy boxes that were on the shelf in front of him and just like slammed it back down. He turned the flashlight on, looked around the closet, but there was nothing there. And Bill said, quote, I had no answers for how that could happen, end quote. But again, he's not really seeing anything. It's just like noises and stuff. He can't explain them, but it's weird, but he's not quite panicking yet. And he's not completely convinced this is something paranormal. I mean, in addition to working for NASA is Bill the queen of denial because like, girl, what is happening? Like what's actually happening? Right? Yes, that might be the case. It's crowned Miss Denial 2002. (laughs) (laughs) But now he doesn't know what to think. So he decides he's going to call his brother. He calls his brother, Bob, and he tells him a little bit about what's going on. But Bob doesn't really believe him. He just assumes that Bill was dreaming the noises and the bed shaking. And I don't think he even mentioned the closet to him at this point because he kind of wanted to give him as little information as possible. But regardless, Bob is a good brother. And when Bill asks him to come over, he does. So when he gets there, Bill asks him to go in the closet and shut the door. And Bob is not me because he's like, yeah, totally. Okay, sure. I don't know why you want me to do this, but fine. I don't mind. So he goes in the closet, closes the door, and then Bill asks him to turn out the light, which fuck no. Fuck no. Absolutely not. I'm not standing in a dark closet alone for your amusement. Thank you. But 
Bob doesn't give a fuck. He's a badass. And he just turns the light out. So standing there in the dark closet, Bob feels something fall against his leg. But he dismisses it. Like maybe he bumped something that fell against him because it's dark and he can't really see. Then something hits him in the face. And while this is much harder for him to dismiss, he doesn't really seem to react. It's not like he like screamed in the closet or made some sort of noise or anything. And Bob explains that in their family, everyone is always very calm and rational. Quote, we don't get spooked real easily, end quote. So he doesn't, we are not the same family. I am going to flip out. So Bob doesn't react at all. And he just calmly comes back out afterwards. When Bill asks him if anything happened, Bob doesn't say anything because according to him, nothing happened in that closet that would make him run out screaming, saying the house was haunted. It was more likely that he had just bumped into things or knocked something over. He said it just wasn't enough to convince him. I mean, it's literally something hitting you in the face, but sure, needs more convincing. I totally get it. Since his brother turned out to be no help and he still felt like he was going crazy, he decided to contact an old friend of his named Mike Higdon, who was a sound engineer. So he gave Mike a call and he told him what was going on in the house. As they were talking, suddenly it seemed like the phone line went dead. Mike kept saying Bill's name, but he couldn't hear anything. Suddenly he heard another voice, something he had never heard before. Bill, on the other hand, recognized it immediately. It was the same threatening voice he and the customer service rep had heard on their call. It was still speaking that same unknown language, which Mike described as sounding like something you would hear in biblical times. He said hearing it made his stomach turn. But since he was a sound engineer by trade, Mike, quick thinker that he is, immediately decides to try and record this strange voice. So he hooks his equipment up and he starts recording it. And he's watching the screen as he does, and he can see that it's recording the voice, like the levels are varying. It's clearly capturing audio. Mike is thinking, this is great. I've fucking got it. Totally unaware that Mike was recording, Bill was still listening to the voice on his end. It was clear that whatever it was saying was threatening, but because he couldn't understand it, he started to get worried that maybe something bad would come from listening to it. Girl, sorry. The call is coming from inside the fucking house. This is bad things have been happening all day. (laughs) Have you never seen a horror movie? What the fuck? Totally. But I feel like part of him is kind of worried that somehow he's going to like give it access to Mike by allowing it to keep like talking maybe is kind of what I read into the situation, which like, good on you for being a friend and being like, dude, hang up. I don't want you to get fucking plagued by this bullshit too. I'm taking one for the team. So he started yelling at Mike to get off the phone, to just hang up and not listen to it. But again, Mike can only hear this voice. He can't hear anything that Bill is saying. Then as suddenly as it started, the voice was gone and Bill was back on the line. Bill told Mike he'd been screaming for him, but Mike said he hadn't heard anything. Then he told Bill the good news he had managed to record it. But when he hit play to let Bill listen over the line, there was nothing. Absolutely no audio. Only Bill's voice at the very end could be heard yelling for him to hang up. Mike, who again is an audio professional with years of experience, who said, like, quote, I had recorded over 1,000 shows by then, said, quote, 
this is physically impossible, end quote. Because again, you see the fucking levels. Like if there was no audio, it's a straight fucking line. You wouldn't see anything being recorded. So he tries to play the file again, but again, nothing on there. They both knew that there was no explanation for what had happened. There was absolutely no reason in the world it shouldn't have played. So at this point, Bill doesn't know what to do. He's freaked the fuck out. And at this point, he realizes and says, quote, I've been living in a house with something that can do whatever it wants, and I can't stop it, and I don't know what's next, end quote, which is fucking terrifying. Then one night, Bill invited Bob and his wife, Cindy, over for dinner, and afterwards, he suggested they all watch a movie together. And Bob and Cindy know that Bill's going through some shit right now and knows that some weird things are happening. So they kind of just assumed he was afraid to be alone. And they're like, sure, we'll stay and watch a movie. So Bill's in his usual chair, the one he sits in front of, in front of TV and has his dinners, the one that he originally saw something dart by him in. So not long after they start watching the movie, Bill's sitting in his chair. And again, he sees something dart out of the corner of his eye. But this time he can see it slightly more clearly. And it's like a little bipedal figure that runs next to him. So he freaks out. He obviously reacts to it. You can't not react to it. And he gets up to kind of look around. And again, nothing's there. But Bob and Cindy can tell that something's going on and that he's obviously seen something. So they're like, what? what's going on? What happened? And Bill doesn't say anything. He just goes to Bob and he's like, just sit in my chair and watch the TV. And Bob's like, Okay, sure. Again, he does not believe anything that's happening. He thinks Bill is dreaming all of this or hallucinating. But he's like, whatever, I'm going to humor the guy. So he sits in the chair and he starts watching the movie. And Bill insists. He's like, you just have to keep looking at the TV. Do not look away from the TV. Just keep looking at the TV. So a few minutes later, Bob's sitting in the chair and he sees a small figure dart by out of the corner of his eye. And Bill's like, you saw it, didn't you? And Bob is like, he doesn't want to believe what he's seen at all. Even though he knows for a fact now he has seen something and he 100% believes that there is some shit going on. This is no longer I like knock some stuff over in the closet. This is I'm seeing shit with my own eyes. So they both see something. Cindy's obviously like, I'm sorry, what the fuck is going on? So they're like, you sit in the chair. So they make Cindy sit in the chair and watch the TV. And sure enough, a few minutes go by, right out of the corner of her eye, she sees the same small figure dash by. So all three of them have seen it definitively. And all of them said it was only about two feet tall, but was very clearly like human in shape with distinct arms and legs. Whatever it was, was very fast. And they said it was like slightly hunchbacked. They showed a picture somebody had drawn of the creature and it looked almost like a little like goblin-y thing, but that's in the reenactment. I don't know. I don't think that's a real drawing, but that's kind of what I'm picturing is like a little gremlin creature running around. I mean, I definitely have had that in my apartment. Girl, like a little small figure. Yeah. Like in my apartment, my bathroom is directly across from my bedroom door. My bathroom door, my bedroom door are like directly across from each other. And because I live by myself, both doors are usually open. So like when I'll be doing like makeup and, you know, looking at myself in the bathroom mirror, like 
it hasn't happened in a very long time, but there was a period of time where out of the corner of my eye, I would see a small black figure like go into my room, like behind my shoulder. <gasps> yeah. No. And you didn't burn your apartment building down, money? You still live there? You crazy lady. It's front stabilized, girl. <sighs> All right. Yeah. <laughs> I deal with the haunting for that too. Facts. Yeah, it's a great location and rent stabilized. <sighs> yeah. It hasn't happened in a very long time. It's like worth the tiny demonic figure running around. Yeah, maybe do. I remember my ex told me that he also saw it. That's always very scary. That's why I really like the stories because like so many other people also saw it and like backed him up. Again, like he didn't tell them he saw the figure or what he saw. He thought it was an animal the first time he saw it. And then he just was like, sit here. And they all saw the same thing, described the same thing. Mm -mm. So even though he's totally freaked out by the fact that obviously they're seeing the same thing as him, part of him is relieved because, again, they're seeing the same thing as You're him. You're not like crazy. He's not going crazy. Yes. Yeah. And Bill said he believed that whatever these things were, that they were the cause of everything that had happened, which, yes, logically, that makes sense now. Although he was terrified, he was glad that he finally had validation for what he had seen since two other people had seen it too. After they saw the weird creature, Bob and Cindy invited Bill to stay over at their house, but he declined. He was worried that if he left, it would not only let those things have run of the house, but it would be showing weakness to them as though he was afraid and he was like giving up his power to them almost, like giving up his territory. Mm -hmm. So that night, now that they've kind of validated this for him, he decides he's finally going to look into paranormal explanations. Because before, he is not even <laughs> acknowledging this. Yeah. Finally, he's like, all right, I guess I'll do like paranormal explanation, bed shaking. Ash Jeeves, thank you. Goblins. Goblins. So Bill spent the rest of the night online researching what was happening to him. He found a paranormal team of investigators that would come out to your home for investigations. And he said this company seemed a little more like scientific than the others. He said they didn't come looking for ghosts. They came looking for answers. So when they come to his house, they're like asking about his AC and they're looking around to see if there's any like branches that would be scratching on your window to make noises or like any animal tracks or anything like that. Like they were not automatically assuming it was something paranormal. They did kind of like look into all the options here. So they do this whole like tour, walk through, and then they decide after talking to him that most of the incidents are happening in Bill's bedroom. So they decide they're going to focus their investigation there. So they set up a bunch of laser grids that cover the entire room and they close the door to isolate the bedroom. So I'm assuming everyone knows what a laser grid is, but basically it's just... It's the scene from Entrapment? Yes, kind of. But they're everywhere so that it basically like creates this little crazy dot pattern all over the room. So it's very easy to see if something moves in the room. So they set everything up in the room. They wait. They're looking at everything on the cameras. Nothing's happening. After an hour or so, they decide to send one of the investigators into the room with an EMF meter to do a session. So the guy goes into the room, shuts the door, lays down on the bed, and he starts asking the usual questions, you know. Is there anything here? What's your name? Show yourself. Anything like that. But again, nothing was happening. So he's like, fuck it. And he basically has decided he's about to get up and leave when one of the lasers suddenly moves. And he freaks out. He's like, holy fucking shit. 
because I feel like they thought something was going to like walk in front of the lasers and you'd see the lasers like on something when the whole laser device thing moved. Oh, shit. So he goes running out of the room and they're like, we had to have caught that on camera. Also, realistically, how many fucking haunted houses, quote unquote, do they go to? And it's a bust and like nothing happens. Oh, I'm sure. I'm going to guess it's probably the majority of their investigations. Yes. I was going to say more than they find shit at, I'm sure. So he immediately runs out of the room and they want to go check the cameras. They have to see that they got this on on tape. But when they went to check the recordings, all of the batteries in the cameras had died, Mm. which these are professionals. You know, they put full batteries in. They're not going to like risk it on fucking 5%. Like, that's fine. We'll make it. Right. However, one camera managed to actually film what happened. And when they played it back, everyone was shocked. They said they could see a mist forming in front of the lasers that looked like it was swirling. Although the guy who was in the room at the time said he didn't see anything while he was physically in there. Mm -hmm. Then right before the laser moved, they hear a distinct sound and they're like, what the fuck was that? So they decide they're going to review the audio. They play it back, keep listening closer and closer, doing whatever they need to do to hear it clearer. And finally, They realize the sound is actually a voice and they can hear it saying, quote, put it back. He's coming. End quote. Full body chills. I know. I wish they had played this in the episode. I'm assuming they didn't. And they used a reenactment for that as well. But that's fucking terrifying. So they hear the voice and then all of a sudden the laser hits the floor right after that. So they're fucking pumped because they got this thing on camera. They have proof now that there is something in his house doing all of these weird, unexplainable things. But the investigation's over. Like, they got what they came for. So it's the end of the night, and they just pack up and leave. Mm -hmm. And Bill stays behind because it's his house. Where the fuck is he going to (laughs) go? Right. A La Quinta, bitch. Right? Like, (laughs) fucking Red Roof Inn. Like, one down the street. Not here. Bob and Cindy's, that's where you're going. Despite the proof that something was going on, though, this was his house, and he was determined to face this problem head on, which, like, I respect, but also burn it down. So Bill decides he's just going to try to go to bed. But as he's laying there, all of a sudden, he hears something slam the outside of the house. Like, sounds like a Mack truck hit the fucking outside of the house. Holy shit. And it was so powerful that he literally is like, I literally have to go check outside to see if there's now a car barreled into my fucking side of my house. Because he's sure there has to be damage, right? Like something that forceful couldn't not leave any damage to the wall. But he gets out there and there's nothing. It's not like something fell off his roof. No tree fell in there. There's no sign that anything has happened. And he walks all over the yard checking everything out. And there's absolutely nothing. So he's like, all right, uh, again, more weird shit. Don't know what's going on. He goes back inside. Immediately, there's a crashing sound from the dining room. And again, he's like, what the fuck? Goes to check it out. Again, nothing has been damaged. There's no glass on the floor. Nothing's fallen. There's everything looks exactly as it has always looked. This is like, like escalation, like poltergeist escalation. Girl. Yes, that is definitely what this seems like. Then there's another crash, this time from the kitchen. And again, Bill goes to look. Again, there's no damage. Nothing's broken. 
Then his car alarm goes off outside. And for him, this is the last straw. He said, quote, we're going to have a final battle here. Either I'm going to send you to hell or you're going to send me to hell. But it's over tonight. End quote. Damn, Gina. Right? Bill has had enough of your bullshit. He's not here for it for one more second. I mean, I'm here for Bill a little bit in this moment. It's a little splooshy. Right? Get it, Bill. Yeah. Splooshy. Magushi. Yeah, get it. <laughs> I'm into it. I'm, I get where you're coming from, Monique. Same Z's. Yeah. Fingers in the eyes. Fingers in the eyes. Yes. So in this redactment, he's, you know, just yelling in his house, like, show yourself. I'm going to, whatever. I'm going to kick your ass. I don't know what you say to a ghost that's threatening, because what are you going to do to it? Or even a, an entity. I don't know that this is a ghost necessarily. So he starts calling it out. Come at me, bro. Whatever. <laughs> I guess that's what you would say to a ghost, right? To start shit. I guess so. Suddenly, there's a crash from his bedroom. So he goes up to investigate, and it's just nonstop at this point. Like, crashing, howling, screaming. Bill said, quote, it was like hell, end quote. Then everything just went dead silent. But Bill said this was not a calming sort of quiet. This was suspiciously quiet. So it seems like everything calms down. He's like, okay, are we done? Did I get rid of it? What's going on? He's like, okay, it's been quiet for a while. He decides he's going to go lay down and try to go to sleep. As he's laying there, again, he hears that same noise coming from under the bed, which last time he heard that was when the fucking hand reached out and grabbed his ankle. So you know he's fucking freaked out. Something's already touched him when this has happened. All of a sudden, he looks at the foot of the bed And there is a six foot tall creature that is completely black and absolutely terrifying. He described it as, quote, an abject fear, a fear into your soul, end quote. Like Bill was so terrified. He was like, is this the end? Like, which makes me think he was like, is this how I die? Is this fucking weird creature that I have no explanation for? Again, this man is a scientist. He worked for NASA. And he is so scared that whatever this creature is, is literally going to kill him. Then, as suddenly as it appeared, it's fucking gone. Nowhere to be seen. Girl, is he like on a landline? Like, what the fuck is happening in this house? (laughs) For real. So after Bill saw this creature entity thing, he believed that whatever this thing was, was the main entity that had been causing all of this and that it just had power over all the little other entities in the house, the little ones he had seen running by. So that I'm assuming he thought they were kind of his minions. Like he likened this creature to... Mm -hmm. This is the HBIC. Yes. He literally called it the general and like everything else was the general's soldiers. So he knew this was like the real thing he had to fight and go up against. Finally, Bill started asking himself why this was happening to him. And after doing a little more research, he remembered that weird house call he had made with the woman doing the ritual. Mm -hmm. And he was convinced that what he had seen had actually been an exorcism and that the woman performing it had orchestrated everything. She had made the appointment for that specific time and warned them not to be late. (gasps) She had specifically wanted someone who was not a part of the ritual to be there at the very 
end of the exorcism. Bill said she had given him a strange look right before he left, and he was completely convinced that she had planned everything. That was the only thing he could think of that would have caused all of this. This is so fucked. Right? Right? Okay. So this is a kind of a weird ending for this story because I couldn't really find that much information after the episode of like what happened. But after he has this realization, he starts getting choked up and he's like, I paid for that for years. Like the decision to go on that house call, he paid for that for years because of like how long this thing tortured him. It's like it follows. Girl. So here's the thing that really got me because I know my reaction is always burn it down and your reaction is always call a priest, have a priest party. No, it's attached to him. Girl. Yes. That for sure, 100%, I feel like is proven even more because Bill said he had two exorcisms performed at his house, but neither of them worked. Girl, this is how the episode ends. He said he's still looking for answers. He can either sell the house or live with it. And he said, quote, I'm not going to live with the burden that I sold that house to a family with kids, knowing full well what would happen to them, end quote. And that's literally how the episode ends of like, I know this thing is real. We actually did manage to get a recording of it. I had two other people see the same thing I saw directly after me, and it just lives in my house. And or as we think is really the case inside of him. And he like, I don't know what happened. I don't know if he still lives with this, if he managed to finally find an exorcism that worked or what. But like, this is a, again, a man of science, very rational. And he was seriously choked up and like deeply upset by what he had seen. Girl, no one can see Monique right now, but like- My jaw has been on the floor. Yes, She's dramatic as fuck right now, and I'm here for it. I have been clutching my chest. I, I'm so dramatic right now. I mean, girl, literally the only thing is I would be like doing like alternate, like drinking like holy water and coconut water. I'd be like, maybe this works. I don't fucking know. Yeah. <laughs> I literally don't know. Like Wait. the Rihanna, like Vita, cocoa water, whatever the fuck. I'd be like, let's go. I love it. Girl, do we have a product that we need to market right now? I think that's what's happening. <laughs> Monique and Amy's cocoa holy water. I love it. Let's do it. Boom. <sighs> this story is fucking insane and so fucked. Girl, I like couldn't handle it. No. I also really like a story where the person's like sciency and I feel like is a little more reputable of a witness to quote unquote paranormal events versus just, you know, Joe Schmo, whoever. For sure. So yes, that is the story of the haunting of Bill Vale, which I he might still be haunted. I don't know. Bill. I know. Are you on LinkedIn? Are you on the gram? Are you good? I know. Well, I hope he got rid of it or you killed the general and now you have a fucking army of little weird goblin minions to do your bidding and like your grocery shopping and shit for you, Bill. <laughs> right? I mean, that's what I'm making them do. Yes. Fuck a seamless. That's my Instacart. Yeah. I'd be like, hi, goblin. Can you go get me some oat milk? Thanks. That was like the most horrifying shit I've ever heard of in my life. Right? What the fuck? I know. Bill, I hope you're okay. I hope you're okay. 
But also, I'm happy that other people saw what you saw and were like, you're not crazy. Yeah. That shit happened. I fucking saw it because that would drive me insane. Like, I would be weirdly okay with, like, dealing with that shit if I knew I actually wasn't crazy versus thinking I was literally descending into insanity while all this was going on. No, I totally agree. As opposed to, yeah, just being like, I'm crazy now. Great. Cool. I have that to deal with. Yeah. Fuck. Now that we have our spooky paranormal story out of the way for spooky season, do you have a horrifying true crime story to traumatize you with this week, Monique? You one-upping yourself again? I do. Mm, I don't know if it's a (laughs) one-up. She's like, I'm doubling down. Fuck it. Let's do this. It's fucked up for sure. Yes. But before we get to the, the, the horrifying true crime, there is a news of justice finally being done. Uh, yesterday, Adnan Syed got his conviction overturned. Oh, shit. Which was the case that launched Serial. Yep. Yeah. He got it after 23 fucking years, got his conviction overturned because it was horseshit. So um, good reminder that it's so awesome. And it's it's a reminder of his supporters just never wavered. Yes. And even though it took 23 years, he's finally fucking out. So progress, slow but certain. Keep at it. I love that. Yes. Yeah. Shouldn't have happened in the first place, obviously, but... Yes, absolutely the fuck not. Fuck yes. This is much preferable than him continuing to languish in jail for no fucking reason. Correct. Yeah. Yay. Well, that was nice. That was... Yay. It's a nice little palate cleanser before I get into a severely (laughs) fucked up story. Thank you for that, Onique. I appreciate it. (laughs) Girl, I got you. Just a heads up, there's several little like side tangents for like backstory of different people. Okay. So that's going to happen a a few times because there's several players in this story. So I didn't really know how to streamline it another way. So please bear with me. Obsessed with you kids. Okay. Pulling an Amy, I'm not going to uh, say who or what this is about. You guys can figure yes. that shit out. So my, I love <laughs> so my sources, wikipedia.com, all that's interesting.com, abcnews.com, medium.com, the Crime Never Sleeps blog, and the This Is Monsters YouTube channel. Stacey Daniels was born on July 24th, 1967 in the small town of Weedsport, New York, about 20 miles west of Syracuse. Her father, Jerry, worked as a car salesman, and her mother, Judy, was a stay-at-home mom. Stacy was one of three children. She had one sister named Darcy and one brother named Jamie. In 1985, when Stacy was a senior at Weedsport Junior Senior High, she met Michael Wallace, who was five years her senior. The recently divorced Wallace had actually been married to Stacy's third cousin, Nancy. Nancy and Mike had two children together during their marriage, a daughter named Renee, who, although she had another biological father, Mike raised her as his own, and a son named James. Mike and Nancy were very young when they got married, and Mike was in and out of jail for drinking and driving a lot. And Mike was known to have a temper and be very abusive towards Nancy. The two called it quits in 1984, a year before he met Stacy. Even though Stacy and Nancy were related, they didn't really know each other or hang out. So it wasn't weird when the 17-year-old Stacy started dating 24-year-old Mike Wallace. All the red flags. None of that's okay. Just saying. Mm. 
Yeah, just because they hung out and knew each other doesn't mean it's not creepy. It's still a little creepy. And it's definitely creepy when you're 17 and your boyfriend's 24. Mm -mm. Yeah, the dude who can buy alcohol, who's dating the person who, like, is probably still in high school, maybe just graduated. Who keeps hanging out around the high school? Yeah. Mm -mm. No. Creepy, pedophile red flags. Mm -hmm. Stacy had wanted to go into law and had even taken some relevant courses while in high school. But all that went out the window as soon as she started dating Mike Wallace. But apparently Mike was very charming. Described as larger than life, Stacy said, quote, Mike was the life of the party. If you needed something that Mike had, he would give it to you, end quote. And Stacy believed that Mike was the love of her life. She said, quote, I knew five minutes after I met him that I was going to marry him, end quote. They dated for two years, and when Stacy was 19, she and her mother got into a car accident. While neither was seriously injured, Stacy discovered that she was pregnant. Oh, shit. That's a hell of a way to find out you're fucking pregnant. Girl, something very similar happened on The Office. Oh, shit. Yes. You're totally right. Mm-hmm. When Mike found out about the pregnancy, he told her he wasn't interested in starting a family with her. So the two broke up. Also, dick, asshole. Oh, then you should have wrapped it the fuck up, motherfucker. You know? Like, bro, you're one half of this equation. Yeah. Hi, you were there. There are consequences. Couldn't do it on my own. Yeah, thanks. I didn't fucking immaculately conceive this bitch. Like, what? In 1988, Stacy gave birth to a girl, Ashley Wallace. And for a few months, it was just the two of them. Eventually, Stacy and Mike got back together, and on April 7, 1990, Stacy Daniels and Mike Wallace were married. While dating Mike, Stacy got to know Nancy, and they all got on like gangbusters. There was no animosity between the ex-wife and current wife, and Mike was able to maintain a relationship with his two other children. With the blended family often spending Christmas together and celebrating the holiday with all three kids, Nancy had noted that while Mike had been controlling and abusive in their marriage, Stacy seemed to be the one running the show this go-around. But Mike still struggled with drugs and alcohol. In 1991, the Wallaces welcomed their second daughter, Bree. And it became very clear that from the minute Bree was born, that she was Mike's favorite child. And his entire life revolved around her. No one's really sure why that is. Theories have suggested that he resented Ashley because she came along before he was ready to have another child to Mike not believing that Ashley was even his biological child to begin with. Either way, Brie was daddy's little girl, whereas you could call Mike's relationship with Ashley non-existent. During this time, Stacy worked as an ambulance dispatcher during the day while Mike worked as a mechanic at night. Because they worked different shifts, they didn't see much of each other, but there was always someone home to take care of the kids. Towards the end of 1999, Stacy confided in a friend that she wanted to divorce Mike. He drank too much, and despite both of them working full-time jobs, they never had any money. However, Stacy didn't want to ruin the holidays with a divorce announcement, so she was going to wait to contact a lawyer about filing until after the new year. However, not long after, Mike got sick, and doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong with him. Mike told the doctor that he felt drunk even when he hadn't had anything to drink, and he was always dizzy. His vitals showed no signs of serious illness, and the doctors theorized that maybe he had an inner ear disorder. So Mike just stayed home and tried to ride out whatever was ailing him. But Mike wasn't getting better. Ashley said, quote, He was having a hard time walking, and he was having a hard time talking. And one time, he sat up, and he just vomited across the coffee table, and laid back down, went back to sleep, 
like nothing ever happened. End quote. Damn, that's some exorcism shit. All right. Yeah, no. Dude, exactly. A few weeks later, in early January 2000, Mike was doing really bad. He was ready to go to the hospital, but he never ended up making it. On January 11th, 2000, Ashley came home from school and saw her father laying on the couch, and she said it looked like he was making funny faces. Then he put his arm up in the air, brought it out to the side, and then dropped it to the floor. Ashley, who was only 12 at the time, didn't know what was going on, and it was time for her to pick up Bree from school, so she left the house and left her father alone. Stacy had come home while Ashley was gone and found Mike unresponsive on the couch. She called 911, and by the time the two girls got home, they were met by ambulances at their house. The girls were taken to a neighbor's house, where they stayed until their grandmother came over and broke the news to them that their father had passed away. Based on Mike's extensive history of drug and alcohol abuse, doctors attributed his early demise to a heart attack. Mike Wallace was 38 years old. Since Mike's death didn't appear suspicious, an autopsy wasn't required, although Stacy could have requested one, but she didn't. Mike's family urged her to reconsider so they could know for sure what had actually killed him and to find out if it might have been some sort of like genetic thing that might affect his children later on in life. But again, Stacy wasn't budging. Ashley was racked with guilt for years following her father's death, blaming herself, believing that maybe if she would have called 911 when she saw him, that she may have been able to save his life. Mike had a modest insurance policy that paid out just under $55,000 to Stacy. She used the money to cover the funeral expenses, paid off some bills, and took her two girls on a trip to Disney World. And the Wallaces quickly adjusted to life as a family of three and learned to just go on business as usual. However, a year later, Stacy met David Castor. David Castor was born on June 12, 1957 in Syracuse, New York, and was the third of six children. In 1976, David married a woman named Janice and worked at her father's HVAC company, which he named David co-owner of the business a few years into his marriage with his daughter. Janice began working in the office and the business became a family affair with the entire family working there. On October 3rd, 1979, the couple welcomed their only child together, a son named David Jr. While David had his controlling streak, Janice was overall happy with the marriage and the casters were the definition of outdoorsy people. Each had their own four-wheeler and snowmobile, They had campers and dirt bikes, although Janice didn't have her own, as she preferred riding on the back of David's bike. In 1987, David bought her a dirt bike, and while Janice tried to learn how to ride it, she had trouble keeping her balance, and after a minor accident, Janice gave up on it. David had planned to sell the bike, so he took it out for a test drive to an empty field across the street from their house to make sure that the bike was still in working order and had no major damage. Somehow, David got into an accident that sent the bike parts flying. When Janice ran across the street, she found her husband motionless, with blood coming out of his mouth, but fortunately still alive, thanks to his helmet. Doctors said he sustained a concussion and a deep cerebral contusion. When he first woke up, he was combative and had to be restrained to the bed. Ultimately, the head injury changed David's personality, and he was never the same after the accident. As a result of the accident, David lost impulse control and would just blurt out anything that came to his mind, no matter how hurtful it was. Oh, no. I know, girl. Can you imagine? Nope, couldn't date that. Nope, sorry. Mm -mm. She's not dating. She's married to this dude. Couldn't be married to that. Nope. Mm -mm. 
And probably not shockingly, his verbal abuse got worse. David Jr. was also on the receiving end of his father's abuse and controlling behavior and left home when he was just 16 years old. When Janice's father retired, he sold half of his business to David. But in January of 2000, Janice had had enough and finally left David. And on August 31st, 2001, David and Janice's divorce was finalized. But David didn't like being alone. He would meet a woman. The two would start dating. He would make her the office manager of the business. He'd ask her to marry him. And she'd say no. Then they'd break up, rinse, and repeat. He did this with multiple women. But it looks like third time was a charm because a year after Mike died, Stacy met David. The two started dating. He made her office manager of the HVAC business and he asked her to marry him. This time, however, Stacy said yes. And it was easy to see why. Stacy was raising two girls on her own and she was struggling financially. Even though David was a controlling asshole, he had a successful business and lots of assets. He owned a home, a boat, four-wheelers, dirt bikes, and snowmobiles. On August 16th, 2003, David and Stacy were married, and according to Stacy, Ashley and Bree were not happy about it. She said, quote, they didn't want their father replaced, end quote. After the wedding, Stacy and her two daughters moved into David's home on Wetzel Road, but it wasn't a smooth transition. Stacy said, quote, David was difficult with the kids. He expected them to do everything that he said without question, and being my children, they questioned everything, end quote. For their second anniversary, David proposed going on vacation, but told Stacy he didn't want to bring Ashley or Bree. Stacy claims that Ashley had to work, and she didn't feel comfortable leaving Bree alone by herself at the time. According to Stacy, this caused a seven-hour-long argument between the two, resulting in David locking her out of their bedroom and Stacy falling asleep on the couch. In the wee hours of the morning, Stacy got up and went to the garage to have a cigarette. David was there, and the two continued to argue. She told Detective Diane Lashinsky, who took her statement, that David had a cup of Diet Pepsi in his hand, and she was afraid he was going to hurt himself, so she asked for a drink, but he wouldn't let her have one. She claims he said, go get your own. She told authorities that David was depressed over his father's recent death and claimed that he told her, quote, if you leave, you'll be sorry. End quote. She told the detective that after their fight, he drank a bottle of Southern Comfort, which barf gross. Ugh. Oh, no. A whole bottle, girl. Ugh. And spent the next two days vomiting. Yeah, that tracks. <laughs> you know. Because it's, yeah. If you went to college, you know. <laughs> also, so gross, disgusting, like gross, barf. I mean, yeah, it is. It's really gross. She continued to try to keep him hydrated by bringing him cranberry juice and water. On Saturday, David collapsed on the bedroom floor and Stacy called friend Michael Kalemna and asked him to come over and help her get him back on the bed. But David was so out of it, he didn't even recognize Michael when he showed up, even though the two had known each other for years. Michael also thought it was odd that he didn't smell any alcohol in David's breath. This bitch. Okay. Okay. Noted. <laughs> Clocked and noted. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. I see you. All right. Stacy told detectives that the last time she saw David alive was on Sunday morning at about 5 a.m. She heard him throwing up, and when she opened the door, he yelled at her to leave him alone and to leave and take the kids with her because it was his house. 
On Monday, August 22nd, 2005, Stacy placed a frantic call to 911 from her office saying that her husband hadn't shown up for work and that he had been locked in their bedroom for the last few days and he wasn't answering his phone. After giving the operator the address to their home, she explained that David had been acting strangely the last couple of days. She told the operator, quote, Friday night we were arguing and he told me and my kids to get out. And then five minutes later, he said if I left, he would make me sorry and that I would be sorry if I ever left him. End quote. She agreed to meet a deputy at her house and headed home. When the deputy arrived on the scene, he reported seeing Stacy sitting in a lawn chair outside of the house smoking a cigarette. And he clocked that she looked very cash about the whole situation. <laughs> it seems like she's pretty cash about it, yeah. Yeah, noting that she appeared unconcerned and that her body language didn't seem appropriate for the situation. The lawn chair is really what's what's getting me there. Yeah. And just like I the visual is just like lawn chair, legs crossed, legs crossed, like taking like the longest drag of the cigarette ever. Yes. More worried about your tan than yeah. Exactly. When they went inside, the deputy found the door to the master bedroom locked. When nobody responded to his knock, the deputy broke down the door and found David lying naked on the bed on his side with bloody vomit pulled below his head. The deputy checked David for a pulse, but found none. Police found two drinking glasses on the nightstand next to the bed. One glass was half full of bright green liquid, and the other one was empty, but there was a brown residue at the bottom. On the nightstand, there was also a bottle of apricot brandy and a bottle of light cranberry juice. On the floor next to the bed was a plastic jug of antifreeze. As detectives arrived and investigated the scene, some quickly noted that it looked like an apparent suicide. Stacy reinforced the narrative, claiming that David had been very depressed lately due to his father's recent passing. As they searched the house, one investigator noticed that the antifreeze bottle was sitting on top of a pile of vomit that had clearly come from over the side of the bed and splattered around the area. However, there was no splatter on the bottle, meaning that the bottle would have been placed there after David had vomited. Authorities also found a loaded shotgun under the bed, which, if this were indeed a suicide, would have been an easier and sorry, but like way less painful way to go than slowly poisoning yourself with antifreeze. Because for those of you who are unfamiliar, death via antifreeze is not the most pleasant way to go. The main ingredient in antifreeze is ethylene glycol. If consumed, ethylene glycol absorbs pretty quickly into the body and then crystallizes. These crystals affect the nervous system and screws up the metabolic process, which can cause intoxication, drowsiness, kidney failure, brain damage, and could lead to a coma or even death. A grown adult weighing 175 pounds would only have to ingest 16 milliliters or three teaspoons of antifreeze for it to be toxic. Like zero amount, nothing. That's insane. Insane. In case anyone is having a hard time visualizing that, like a little 50 milliliter beaker is basically like a shot glass size in lab. So like 16 milliliters is like the very bottom of that. What? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it only takes 224 milliliters or about a cup to be fatal. And once it's in your system, your body slowly starts shutting down. You die of multiple organ failure and are in constant pain and continuously vomiting for anywhere between 24 and 72 hours, depending on the dosage. So 
again, kind of weird that this is the way he's choosing to go when he legit has a loaded shotgun underneath the very bed that he was found dead on. Yes. And statistically, men are more likely to try to end their lives by a gun. Yes. And are more successful at it. Yes. Because that's way more effective. And women are far more likely to like try overdosing or something like that, which would be like poisoning yourself. That's weird that that's what we gravitate towards. Yeah. Because we assume that it's not going to hurt as much. You know, leave a beautiful corpse or whatever the fuck. Who knows? <laughs> Who the fuck knows, man? Uh. As authorities continue to search the home, one of the investigators noticed a turkey baster in the garbage can. The baster looked brand new and there wasn't any visible wear on it. So it seemed unusual that someone would throw it away. There were some tiny droplets inside the baster indicating that there had been liquid in it at some point recently. So the baster was collected, bagged up, and taken back to the crime lab with the other evidence recovered from the scene. Stacy and the girls were taken to the police station to make a statement. There, Detective Lashinsky took down an eight-page statement from Stacy. And the detective, who had taken down many a statement before, noted that this was by far the most detailed statement she'd ever taken down. Stacy told her everywhere she went, what people ate, her trip to the convenience store to buy cigarettes, what brand of cigarettes she purchased, and that she believed that David had gotten the idea about dying via antifreeze from an episode of 48 Hours that they had seen a month earlier. Stacy said that the episode featured a storyline where a woman killed two husbands by putting antifreeze in their green jello. However, when investigators later checked this, the producers of 48 Hours said that they never aired an episode with that storyline. Oh, shit. Also, I love that somehow in the story where the wife kills two of her husbands, her husband gets the idea to commit suicide. But by this method? Correct. Weird. That's a weird... Yeah. She also told the detective that the HVAC business was struggling financially. Ashley and Bree were in different interview rooms telling another detective what they remembered from the night. And while it didn't necessarily back up their mother's story, it also didn't call anything she said into question. But those who knew him, including his ex-wife Janice, categorically rejected the idea that David had died by suicide. And Detective Dominic Spinelli, who became the lead investigator on the scene, agreed. As he thought a ton of shit looked sus as fuck, and was therefore hesitant to rule the cause of death a suicide. For instance, the glass half full of antifreeze found on the bedside table was too clean. How did someone who was that sick with ethylene glycol poisoning, sweating and vomiting literally all over the room, not get a mark or a smudge of it on the glass? The only marks found on the glassware were three fingerprints, all of them belonging to Stacy. Here's the thing, though. She does live in the house, so yes, it's safe to assume that she touched the glasses all the time. The other glass on the table, however, had no fingerprints on it at all. While the turkey baster found in the trash was also free from fingerprints, the inside of the baster tested positive for antifreeze. Not to mention, David's DNA was found on the tip of the baster, a.k.a. someone had used the turkey baster to force feed David antifreeze. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Oh, shit. Oh, that took me like a full <laughs> second to process that information. I was like, why was this? And I was like, oh, she just straight squirted in his mouth. Like, uh. Mm-hmm. Like, at least make it interesting. Get a little squirt gun and just like, 
right? Make a game out of it. <laughs> yes, thank you. The thing noticeably missing from the scene was David's fingerprints. Yeah, weird how that happened. He handled two glasses and the antifreeze bottle, yet somehow managed to not get his fingerprints on any of it. How curious. The blood sample taken from David also showed very little alcohol in his system, which was not consistent with Stacy's narrative that David had been drinking all weekend. Then they looked at both Stacy's cell phone and office phone records, and contrary to her statement, she had not called the house multiple times on Monday. She had only made one phone call to the house that day, just before she called 911. It also came out that Stacy which is not super surprising, was in possession of David's will, which stated that in the event of his death, all of his assets went to her and that almost nothing should go to his own son, David Jr. If that wasn't sus enough, the will said that if Stacy died, everything would go to Ashley and Bree, aka the two children who not only were not his biological children, but that he also didn't even get along with. And again, nothing would go to David Jr. David Jr. and David's ex-wife Janice knew that something was wrong. So she contacted Detective Spinelli and told him that not only did she believe David would never die by suicide, but she knew that he definitely would never cut his son out of his will. Stacy inherited David's estate, which included the sale of David's HVAC business, plus just under $50,000 in life insurance. Janice still had a copy of David's will from when they were married, And she also found a bunch of forms that David had signed, which she turned over to the police for comparison. In news that will be shocking to absolutely fucking no one, authorities were able to prove that not only had the will been forged, but in an amateur hour move, the witnesses to the signatures of the will had actually been Stacy's friends. Dude. I mean, it's... (sighs) Be better at this. Like, if you're going to do this shit, like, think it out. Take a... Take a minute. Girl, we're not done. We're like not remotely done. What? Okay. Detectives decided to dig deeper into Stacy's past and thought it would be a good idea to talk to her first husband, Michael Wallace. But as we already know, Mike Wallace had already passed away five years earlier. That's when they discovered that Mike was not only dead, but in a what the fuck move, Michael was buried right next to David in the same cemetery. And when I say right next to... I mean, they are literally right the fuck next to each other. Authorities reached out to Mike's family and discovered that Stacy refused to have an autopsy done on her mostly healthy 38-year-old husband. So Detective Spinelli got a warrant, and on September 5th, 2007, Mike Wallace's body was exhumed and an autopsy performed. Three guesses on what the fuck they found. Antifreeze poisoning? Antifreeze crystals! Hey! <laughs> Sergeant Michael Norton of the Onondaga County Sheriff's Office remembered the medical examiner told him that Mike Wallace was, quote, loaded with crystals, end quote, and rat poison for good measure. Dr. Spinelli said, quote, I knew at that point that we had a double homicide and Stacy Castor probably killed both her husbands, end quote. They also obtained copies of his medical records, and at the time of his death, while Stacy had told the doctor that Mike had a lot of medical issues, guess the fuck what? That also was a fucking lie. The only thing in his medical history of note was that he had a hernia once. It was theorized that Mike was being slowly poisoned, but the killer got impatient that the antifreeze wasn't working fast enough. 
So rat poison was shoved down the victim's throat to expedite the process. Ugh, that's brutal. Fuck. Police had set up a camera at Stacy's home and one at the graveyard where her husbands were buried. Authorities had also wiretapped her home and cell phones. And it was in one of those phone calls that they learned that Stacy had gone to the cemetery shortly after Wallace's body had been exhumed. And upon seeing that Mike's grave had been dug up, she freaked the fuck out and started calling everyone she knew, saying that she didn't believe the police had found antifreeze in Mike's system and that they were trying to pin Mike's natural death of a heart attack on her. On September 7th, 2007, Stacy was brought back to the police station for questioning, where Detective Spinelli, again, asked her how many times she called her house on Monday. And again, she said several times. When he informed her that the phone record said that she had only called the caster home once, she claimed that she had made other calls from her cell phone. And Spinelli was like, yeah, girl, check those records too, and it only shows you made one call. Then the detective showed her a picture of the bedside table and asked her again which glass she touched in the bedroom. And in a move that you literally could not make up, Stacy pointed to the empty glass and said, quote, well, I poured the antifree, I mean, I poured the cranberry juice into this glass, end quote. Direct quote. No. Girl. Ugh. You're too dumb to live. I can't. I cannot. You know what? Thank you for that. Ugh. Also, important to note, she said antifree, not antifreeze. So just keep that in your back pocket for later. Foreshadowing. Oh no, is she going to try to claim that's something completely different? That's not, I wasn't saying antifreeze. It's this like crazy Brazilian drink I love. The antifree, you didn't know? So when the detective picked up on her slip of tongue, she accused him of trying to frame her and stop the interview. Like, bitch, I didn't say antifreeze. You said antifree. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like, girl, okay, we'll get into it. Stacy knew that she was fucked, like she was completely fucked, so she quickly went in search of a scapegoat. On September 12th, Ashley was attending her first day at college when two investigators arrived to deliver the news that her father hadn't died of a heart attack, but had actually died of antifreeze poisoning. Can you imagine? No. Oh my God. Because it's not bad enough. It's a new school. You're in college now. Oh my God, jitters, jitters. And then it's like, hey girl, um, before you go to Trig, your dad definitely didn't die naturally. He was totally murdered. Okay, thanks, bye. Have fun. Good luck. Have fun in orientation. Ugh. I thought that you were going to tell me they are arresting her for suspicion of his murder and that the mom is trying to pin it on her daughter, which would be super effed up. Girl, let's wait. <sighs> we're wait, wait, girl. Wait, wait, girl. There's, there's still a bunch of this shit left. This is where you have to be like, shut your mouth, Amy. Shut your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> like I did to you so many times last episode. <laughs> I love you. Love you. Ashley was understandably upset and shaken up, and she called her mother. Police wiretaps recorded Stacy asking her daughter questions about her conversations with the detectives. Then Stacy suggested that the two of them have a drink together because they've had, quote, had a hard day, end quote. But because Ashley was still underage at this point, the two of them couldn't just go out to a bar for a drink. So she went back home to the house that she shared with her mother and sister Bree. And Ashley 
takes her up on that drink. Stacy fixes her daughter a drink, and she takes it and becomes very lethargic and eventually passes out in her bedroom. The following day, on September 13th, 2007, Ashley woke up hungover, but got herself together and headed to her morning class. When Ashley returned home again around noon, Stacy suggested that the two should get drunk again to celebrate Ashley's 21st birthday early, which granted, she's like two years off. FYI. Wow. Not great parenting. Mm-mm. Stacy prepared a cocktail for her daughter, and when Ashley tasted it, it didn't taste good. But instead of making her another drink, Stacy gave Ashley a straw and insisted that she throw that drink back, telling her to put the straw in the back of her throat so she wouldn't taste it and just to drink it. Wow. It's just doubling down on the bad parenting, like all around. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <sighs> the 19-year-old did as her mother told her. Shortly thereafter, around 1.30 p.m., Ashley became very tired and went to lie down. She did not come back out of her room for the remainder of the day. The next morning on September 14th, 2007, Bree had gotten up early to check in on her sister since she had not seen her since she went down for the nap the previous afternoon and just wanted to make sure that she was okay. But as soon as Bree saw her sister, she knew she wasn't okay. Ashley was lying on her bed with her eyes open, her mouth open, barely breathing, and not responding to Bree. And when Stacy heard Bree screaming for help, she ran downstairs and called 911. Stacy told the operator that in addition to drinking an entire bottle of vodka the night before, she had taken Ambien, which, huh? When did that make it into the story? And while Stacy was on the phone with emergency services, Ashley started vomiting. In all the commotion, Bree noticed a folded piece of paper sitting near the head of the bed that she hadn't seen when she first went in the room to check in on her sister, but appeared after she had left and re-entered it. Bree picked it up and started reading it and found a 750-word typewritten letter that appeared to have been written by Ashley with her typed signature, confessing to the murders of her father and stepfather and saying that she was now taking her own life. Stacy grabbed the paper and told the 911 operator that her daughter had left a suicide note. Assistant District Attorney Christine Garvey said that Stacy, quote, really wanted the 911 call taker to know that there had been a suicide note. It seemed more important for her to tell them about the suicide note than to be talking about the condition of her daughter, end quote. Ashley was rushed to the hospital. When she arrived, her heart was beating at 170 to 190 beats per minute. Doctors rushed to stabilize the girl and detox her system. Throughout, Sergeant Michael Norton kept asking what she took, but she couldn't answer. District Attorney William Fitzpatrick said, quote, she had a cornucopia of drugs in her system. I was told later she was 15 minutes from death, end quote. Eventually, the doctors finished and Ashley came too, but she was confused and disoriented. She asked the sergeant if she had been in a car accident. Sergeant Norton informed Ashley that she'd been found unconscious next to a typed-up suicide note where she confessed to killing her father and stepfather. Norton said, quote, She looked at me really wide-eyed and flat out says, I did not try to kill myself, nor did I leave a suicide note. End quote. She was adamant that she hadn't killed anyone and denied that she had taken any pills. Ashley would later go on to say that she almost immediately knew that her mother had tried to kill her. 
Oh, chills. Like, how can you have that realization? That's so horrifying. Uh, girl, on your first day of school. Oh, I forgot it was her first day. Oh, no. It's her first day of college. <sighs> Fuck. So, like, I get an automatic 4.0 for this, right? Because of the trauma? Yeah. Just, like, just asking for a friend. Like, (laughs) I know, right? Fuck. Ashley told Norton about being stressed about her dad's body being exhumed and her mother suggesting that the two get drunk to forget about it, to which Ashley admitted that she thought was pretty fucking rad of her mom, given that she was still only 19 years old and that Ashley took a nap and woke up in the hospital. At 4 p.m. that same day, Stacy Castor was arrested at the hospital and charged with the murder of David Castor and the attempted murder of Ashley Wallace. On December 20th, 2007, Stacy was indicted on one count each of second-degree murder, second-degree attempted murder, and a plot to present a forged will. On September 25th, 2008, the judge ruled that Michael Wallace's death could be submitted as evidence during the David Castor murder trial, which when the fuck does that happen? Literally fucking never. Never. They're always like, eh, all that like sketchy stuff they did before, we're not gonna... Prejudicial and admissible. That's, thank you for knowing all the correct words. Instead of just being like the sketchy shit they did earlier, you can't talk about it. Sorry. By the way, because you can find the trial footage online, I highly recommend you check it out. One, the DA is a fucking bulldog. And he's not here for her shit. And her lawyer keeps being like, uh, uh, objection, objection. And literally, the, the judge is overruled, overruled, overruled. It's like, I've never seen anything the fuck like it. It's incredible. I love it. Yes. All the while, Stacy is protesting her innocence. She said, quote, I had a speeding ticket when I was 18 years old. That's the closest I've ever come to a brush with the law. End quote. Which... Go fuck yourself. Except for now, after you did some other awful stuff. Right. Yeah. She hired Chuck Keller to represent her. And in addition to maintaining her innocence, Stacy alleged that when Ashley was 12 years old, she killed her own father, Mike Wallace, then her stepfather, David Castor, when she was 17 years old, then wrote a confession letter and attempted to kill herself. But when she survived the suicide attempt denied everything, including ever writing the suicide note, and instead allowed her mother to be arrested and convicted for a crime that she had actually committed. Sure, Jan. This is the surest Jan of all the sure Jans that I've ever sure Janned. Yes. Do you hear yourself? But here's the thing. She had at least one supporter, and that was her mother, Judy. (sighs) A mother's love. I guess so, girl. I don't think I have that. I has no bounds, apparently. I guess. No. I do not has. Judy said, quote, they were blaming Stacy for this. I kind of went hysterical. I cannot believe Stacy has it in her to kill two men, especially men she's supposed to love. I do not believe Stacy did it. She would not frame Ashley, end quote. Hate to break it to you, bitch. The prosecution presented all of the evidence that had been uncovered in the years leading up to the trial. For one, contrary to what Stacy had told police, David's business was not in financial turmoil. It was doing just fine. And the crazy thing is, is that the majority of the case became a battle between Stacy and Ashley. The only way Stacy couldn't be the killer was if Ashley was. 
evidence pointed to the fact that while Stacy's fingerprints were found at the crime scene, Ashley's fingerprints weren't found anywhere that would point to her poisoning David or attempting suicide. Uh-huh. Then there was the 750-word suicide note the prosecutors believed that whoever had written it was the killer. The reason being that the note mentioned giving Mike Wallace rat poison. When authorities exhumed Mike's body, they found antifreeze in his system, but they also found rat poison. However, that information was never released by police. So whoever wrote the letter had to have done it. And the letter reads like a rambling string of consciousness confession. For one, not a single punctuation mark appears in the letter. <gasps> yes. Mm-hmm. No. If I die and my suicide note has no punctuation, I did not write that. Absolutely. Correct. Just saying. Ashley's in college. Granted, she was in it for like two fucking days, but they don't let you into an institution of higher learning if you don't know how to fucking use punctuation. Yes. She still had to apply and get accepted. Girl, I know. You have to write a fucking paper and shit. And the things, the note reads very childlike, almost like it was dumbed down to look like someone younger or less intelligent had written it. The confession is so detailed and so self-aware with lines like, quote, mommy, now they think you did it, but you didn't. It was me, end quote. Oh my God. And it's just all of that over and over and over and over and over again. That's so gross to do to your own daughter. I really can't. Uh Uh-huh. It's insane. Yes. Ashley's fingerprints, shockingly, were nowhere on the letter that she allegedly wrote, printed out, and folded. But guess whose were? Stacy's? Stacy's. Ah, weird. That's so crazy that happened. I'm sure it's just because she picked it up to read it. It's... Obvi. Ashley must have worn gloves because clearly... Exactly. Then there is the piece de resistance, as they say. Four times in the letter, the word anti-free appears. <gasps> what did Stacy admit to putting in David's drink during the interrogation? Anti-free. Anti-free! Wait! Girl. She actually doesn't realize it's anti-freeze. I guess the fuck not. She thinks it's anti-free! Yeah. Mm-hmm. I got chills when you said that. Ugh. Girl. Look up how to spell shit. So many people have gotten caught from misspelling shit. Literally. Like, just Google exists. Just Google it. So when you did your story last week, I knew I was going to be doing this story already, but I didn't know this detail of the spelling. Like yours also had the spelling thing. And I was like, psychic sisters, bitch. Always. Ah, I love that. Not to mention, during his cross-examination, T.A. Fitzpatrick, which I mentioned, is a total fucking bamf. Check, like literally check out all of his cross stuff. It's fucking, it's it's amazing. It's literally like, the shit you see on Law and & Order and on TV, but you never see an actual courtroom shit, D.A. Fitzpatrick is fucking nailing it. He confronted Stacy with computer evidence that showed Ashley's quote-unquote suicide letter had been written on Stacy's computer, which was located in the living room, and that two drafts of it had been written and then deleted the day before. Again, on Stacy's computer. <sighs> Girl. I said this earlier in the episode, and I'm going to back it up right now. This woman is too stupid to live. I actually can't handle. Absolutely. She's also a terrible mother, clearly. So fuck off. I have no sympathy for her. This woman is awful. Yes. Like, and it kills me because, like, 
people, you're so bad at this and you're so fucking stupid and two people are fucking dead with an attempt on another person. Like, fuck you. Ugh. They also found that the last time the printer logged that anything had been printed was at 9.30 p.m. on September 12th. The suicide note mentions the police coming to Ashley's school, which happened around 8.40 a.m. that day. Ashley was also in school until 3.15 p.m. Then she and her mother went to Syracuse to run errands until around 7 p.m. Fitzpatrick grilled Stacy, asking if she had seen her daughter typing out the 750-word suicide note or if Ashley had been on the computer, period, from 7 p.m. to 9.30 p.m. And to complicate matters, Stacy was on the phone at the computer from 8.30 p.m. until 9 p.m., narrowing the window that Ashley herself could have typed out the lengthy confession on her mother's computer even more. When pressed to answer, Stacy, as she had done throughout the entire trial, yet again painted herself into a corner and could only answer, quote, I can't recall, end quote. Bree, her boyfriend, and Stacy's boyfriend, Michael Oxner, a man Stacy had been dating since before David had died, were all at the house. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. She's a fucking peach. She's a piece of work. Yep. Real piece of work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jinx. I love that. Jinx. Sorry, I got way too excited that we jinxed. Like, I squealed. Sorry. No, I love that. <laughs> no, it was amazing. They were all at the house during the time that Ashley supposedly typed up the suicide note on the computer in the living room and printed it out. But again... No one saw Ashley on that computer. It was painfully obvious to most people that Stacy had poisoned both of her husbands and then tried to kill and frame her daughter for the crimes. That being said, it still did take the jury four days to deliberate, which, not cute. On February 5th, 2009, Stacy Castor was found guilty of murder in the second degree for the murder of David Castor, guilty of the attempted murder of her daughter, and guilty of forging David Castor's will. During sentencing, Ashley made an impact statement. Through tears and with her sister Bree by her side, Ashley said, quote, I hate my mother for ruining so many people's lives. I don't even know why she did it. What gave her the right to play God with people? And I hate her for having me be the one to find my dad, just like I hate her for having Bree find me. I never knew what hate was until now. Even though I do hate her, I still love her at the same time. That bothers me. It's so confusing. How can you hate someone and love them at the same time? I just wish that she would say sorry for everything she did, including all the lies. And though I feel bad for her today, as she sits there all by herself, she's the one that did this to herself. End quote. Ashley also brought up her mother's forged note and how insulted she was at how little her mother thought of her. She said, quote, she tried to make me look stupid in that note she wrote. I'm trying so hard to make something of myself. I have a 3.9 GPA. She tried to make me look stupid. End quote. And Ashley heartbreakingly went on to say, quote, She was my best friend, too. She was. And then she took that all away. I would have done anything for her, but she decided she wanted to kill me instead. End quote. And as her daughter is saying this, sobbing, Stacy just sat there cold and emotionless, like zero expression, zero anything. Like actually cold-hearted bitch, like fucking crazy. So fucked up. Yeah. 
At sentencing, the judge said that he had never seen a parent try to murder their own child and then attempt to set that child up for a crime that they themselves had committed, and that Stacy was in a class all her own. On March 5, 2009, Stacy Castor was sentenced to just over 51 years to life in prison, 25 years to life for the murder of David Castor, another 25 years for the attempted murder of Ashley Wallace, and one and a third years to four years for forging the will. The sentences were to run consecutively, making her eligible for parole after 51 years just before her 88th birthday. In 2010, after the trial, family members notified police of their suspicion that Stacy may have also murdered her own father, Jerry Daniels, in 2002. Wild. I mean, she's got a record, so I'm not, I'm not really surprised. Yeah, no, not at all. Like, yeah, sure. Lump it in. In February 2002, Jerry Daniels was being treated at St. Joseph's Hospital for a lung ailment and was making improvements. On the day he was set to be discharged from the hospital, his daughter Stacy came to visit him. A witness says they saw Stacy go into Jerry's hospital room with a soda for her father to drink, but noticed that the soda had already been opened. The day after she visited her father, Jerry Daniels passed away. Stacy was the executor of her father's estate and his wealth and estate were bequeathed to her. Jerry's remains were cremated at Stacy's request. And while there was an autopsy which found his death to be a natural one, Jerry Daniels was already an elderly man in the hospital, so the medical examiner didn't necessarily have a cause to dig deeper for the cause of death. Without a body, determining if Jerry had actually died via natural causes would be difficult to prove for certain, but the DA said he would be investigating the accuracy of the autopsy report. Unfortunately, the DA's investigation came to an end after Stacy Castor died of a heart attack on June 11, 2016, while she was serving time at the Bedford Hills Correctional Facility for Women in New York. Stacy Castor adamantly maintained her innocence until the day she died. She said, quote, I did not kill Michael Wallace, I did not kill David Castor, and I did not try to kill my daughter, period. And I will never say that I did, ever, end quote. Well, the evidence says you did, and so did a jury. So actually fuck off. Uh-huh. Actually fuck off. As I mentioned earlier, Michael Wallace, David Castor, and Jerry Daniels were all buried next to each other in a plot Stacy had purchased. Weird! I know! And like literally, like there's zero space. She's like, I got some bodies coming up. I'm just gonna buy a plot. I'll get a discount. Yeah. I mean. Mm-mm. Girl. In 2016, David Castor Jr. petitioned the court for permission to move his father's body from where Stacy had buried him. Permission was granted, and now David Castor rests near his own family. His son had a new headstone erected, omitting Stacy's name and title as David's wife. And that is the story of Black Widow, Mother of the Year, and possible dad killer, Stacy Castor. Wow. Holy shit. That woman is awful. But she's dead now, so. She's dead. That's good. Yeah. Again, couldn't, couldn't have happened to a nicer lady. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, it, there's, I can't get over how fucked up that was, though. There's so much. There's so much. Mm-hmm. Like, relax. <laughs> relax. Also, you're so bad at this. Relax and then, like, do some research. Like, you did this two times before. You'd think you'd be better at it, but you're... Possibly three. Yeah. Awful. Just awful. Yeah. And then you try to pin it on your daughter and kill her on top of that? I can't even get 
started on that because I'm so infuriated by that. And like, oh, her victim impact statement was phenomenal, though, and gave me chills. Yes. Yes. Good for you, girl. And fuck that bitch. Your mom is awful. Fuck her. Yes. (sighs) Girl, I love that story, though. Thank you so much for doing that. I love that we like had a little psychic sister with the uh, misspellings of stuff. Anti-free. Anti-free. I will never get over that, Monique. Oh, too stupid to live. Third time I'm saying it. <laughs> no, the DA like asked her to to reenact when that happened, that slip. And she does it like it's it's chilling because it's like, oh, my God, like she totally admitted this shit. Like it's fuck. It's crazy. It's crazy. So ridiculous. Oh, this is an intense one today. It was a very intense one, but it was great. I loved it. Thank you. So was yours. Holy fuck. Thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, it was amazing. Well, I, I don't even know what that was. Like it was it, an entity, a goblin, something, something weird, something demonic. Something I don't want in my goddamn house. Definitely not. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you don't follow us on the gram already, this is another fucking horror podcast. I'm Monique Sanchez. I'm Amy Traden. Follow the show on the gram at another fucking horror podcast. You can find me, Monique Sanchez, at Pin Up Girl Mo. You can find me, Amy, at Lobotomy, and that's Lobot period Amy. Every sixth episode, we do a true listener tales episode where we read your crazy stories. And if you have a story or you just want to say hi, email us at another fucking horror podcast at gmail.com with a period instead of the you and fucking. As always, we're so fucking obsessed with you guys. Keep it cute. Keep it creepy. Bye. Bye.